Good morning. You can be seated. Uh, my name is Todd, and I uh, serve as one of the pastors here at FBC. Um, and uh, just wanted to say thank you to the church uh, for praying for the kids that came to encounter. We had 65 students uh, from uh, across the region or across the, uh, Medford uh, come and just uh, encounter Christ uh, in a new way. And so thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Um, it was an awesome time. And so if you're uh, wondering what that hint of uh, Roma is, it's, that's called teenager. And so, uh, but we'll be reading uh, in the scriptures today from Luke uh, chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with no, noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you uh, for what you're doing in our lives. We pray that Anything that, that uh, distracts us or that we are worried or anxious about, Lord, we lay those at your feet this morning. We pray that we would just encounter you this morning um, in this place, that you would move in our hearts to change our hearts from the inside out so that we can become more and more like your son, Jesus. And we thank you so much for what you're doing in this church and through this church and through the lives of uh, the, the, uh, the people that are in this room and even the ones that are, that are home, and we ask that you would continue to move and work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning. Hope you're having a good morning so far. We're in Luke chapter 2, or 21, I should say, verses 5 through 24. This week and next week, we're looking at a portion of the book of Luke, as we've been working our way through Luke this uh, year, that is often called the Olivet Discourse, and there's a more lengthier version of it over in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and the reason I mention that is a lot of what Jesus discusses in this portion of scripture, the Olivet Discourse, or you know, Luke 21 here for a few verses, and uh, are prophetic in nature. Jesus, along with his disciples, are discussing things that are going to happen in the future. Not all prophecy deals with the future. Some prophecy is present tense, and some of it is future tense, and Jesus is going to talk, be talking about things that are in the future, and it seems like when we talk about prophecy, especially about prophecy that deals with things in the future, for some reasons, we find that really, really, really interesting. You know, there, the Bible has a lot of prophecy in it, but as soon as we start talking about wars and tumults and these kinds of things, we go, oh, good get out our newspaper, let's get out our Bible, maybe, maybe we're there. And that's good. I love the fact that prophecy gets us interested in our scripture. And this is why I wanted to mention this before we jump in uh, to the message today, because the message is titled, When Will the End Come? And most of you ask that question while I'm preaching. And, and the answer is always the same. We're closer than we've ever been both in the message as well as uh, to the end of things. When will the end come? The reason I mention this about prophecy, if you look in your worship folder, if you visit fbcmedford.org, 
We have an event coming up on April 29th. It's a Prophecy Pros pop-up conference. We've arranged to have a couple of fantastic speakers come here for the day. It's 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., four sessions all in one day. We have lunch that we'll be serving for 10 bucks that will also benefit uh, the mission trip to Costa Rica. These are a couple of great speakers on prophecy. They're both trained at a school down in Dallas called Dallas Theological Seminary. And so it'll be great time. Really, what it is is it's a Bible conference. I don't know, but, but it's focusing on the sections of Scripture that deal with prophecy. So if that's something you're interested in, I hope it is, you want to make arrangements to come and you can register for it. It is free. Conference is free. Lunch is 10 bucks because we're going to give that money to the kids going to Costa Rica. Uh, but the conference is free, but you can register online. That, we know, that way we know about how many people are coming. We can make proper arrangements. So look in your, web, your worship folder or fbcmedford.org. There's a link at the top called Prophecy Pros, and uh, that's April 29th. When will the end come? That's a good question. When will the end come? Let's take a look at what Jesus had to say, and here's how I want us to think about the end of things. Here's a, a way of thinking about it. If you are a mountain climber, or if you've ever hiked up a mountain, or if you've ever hiked uphill, I, you know, trying to make sure everyone's included to some degree. There's a, a thing that happens. I know what happens on Mount McLaughlin the one time I hiked up that thing, and then I realized that's really a long way to walk. There's a phenomenon. It's common. It's called a false peak. A false peak. What happens is, as you're hiking up the mountain, your perspective on the trail is such that you will round a corner, and you'll see a ridge, and in your mind, it looks precisely like what the summit looks like. And so as you round the corner, you see this ridge, and it's just right there, and you say, oh my goodness, fantastic, we're almost there. And, and you get excited, and you have a burst of energy, and you begin walking a little bit faster because you're almost there. Then you get to that false peak and realize you're not even close. There's three more of those to go through. And so what happens is you get let down. Experienced climbers know, if they're, especially if they're climbing a new mountain, to do some research and find out if there are any significant false peaks. One uh, mountain in Colorado, Mount Elbert, has at least two, some people say three, significant false peaks near the top. And there have been are stories told of people getting to a false peak, discovering it's a false peak, and being so discouraged, they're unable to finish because they realize they're not yet, there yet. The peak of Mount Elbert's over 14,000 feet. So this idea here is we, we think we're almost there, we see it, and we realize we're not there. And because we expended all this energy, we now don't have enough gas left to, to make it to the end. So what is Jesus going to help us understand about looking towards the end in, in light of this? Our desire to know when, will the, when the end will be. And that's a valid desire. The disciples are going to ask about it, and Jesus is going to answer their question without correcting them for asking. Nothing wrong with asking the question, when will the end be? This desire to know when will the end be. That desire, by its very nature, makes us vulnerable to deception. That, that deep-seated, when is it going to happen, that yearning makes us vulnerable to error, just like a hiker is vulnerable to error because he's so anxious to get to the top. And so what we want to do is look at what Jesus has to say and keep his teaching in mind as we look to the future so that we avoid deception. That's what we want to do, don't we? 
As we work our way through our Christian life and anticipate the end of all things that might occur in our lifetime or it might not, we want to make sure we aren't vulnerable to deception. So when will the end be? First thing, don't be fooled. When will the end be? Don't be fooled. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Luke 21 with me again. While some were speaking in the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said. Now, if you look at the version of this over in Matthew, you realize the disciples were saying this. Luke decided to make the speakers generic. That's typical for Luke. But we know here that the disciples in particular are saying to Jesus, man, this is some building, isn't it? And they're looking at the temple. As a matter of fact, the temple was some building. It was at the time, likely, the most important building on the planet, the most beautiful and well-adorned building on the planet. And while some were speaking, the disciples who were looking at the temple would say, hey, Jesus, I mean, nice building, right? And Jesus says this, as far as these things that you see, the, the, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the disciples here are looking at the temple, and they want Jesus to be impressed like they are. This temple is a big deal. This temple is a big deal. Jesus wants the disciples to have their minds reformed and retrained on what is important. He says, do you know what this temple is? This temple is temporary. This temple is not permanent. This, this temple will not last forever. And Jesus said, in fact, the day is going to come when not one of these stones of the temple will be on top of each other. It's going to be destroyed. Now, this would have been shocking to the disciples for Jesus to say that the temple is going to be destroyed. He said as much over in John chapter 2, verse 19. Je Jesus answered them when they were asking for a sign. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So now in this, what's he talking, is he talking about the temple in that verse? No, he's talking about his body. He's saying, if you crucify me, which they will do because he lets them, he raises up after three days. What he wants the, us and his disciples to understand, there are more important things going on than a really fancy temple in Jerusalem. And why was this important for Jesus to help them see the temple differently? Because the temple was a really, really big deal to the people of Israel. A really, really big people deal to the people of Israel. Here's how big a deal it was to the people of Israel. Since there was a temple, God, therefore, could never destroy Jerusalem. Why? Because God would never destroy his temple, would he? That's how they think. That's how they were thinking. How do we know this is how they were thinking? Because this is how the people of Israel thought about their temple, even back to the Older Testament. So let's read from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah Chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. And this is a long section. I'm just going to read it. And I know sometimes it's hard um, to hear long, large sections of the Scripture read. So try and pay attention. We've got it on the screens for you in the language you can read. I'm going to read it. I d and I want to I make sure you understand where I'm coming from. Um, I know it's hard to listen to people read the scripture, and I want you to know where my heart is. I don't care if it's hard. I don't. I want to make sure we're on the same page. I was worried that maybe you thought I was concerned about it, but if it bothers you that we're reading the scripture in church, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that's kind of what we do. Here we go. 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Lord's house equals temple. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? That seems familiar. Anybody quote this? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was before they built the temple. Where I made my, my name dwell at first. See what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when, called, when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So Jeremiah tells the people of Israel they had confidence God would never bring judgment on them because they had the temple. And that temple was the temple Solomon had built. And here's Jeremiah coming to them and saying, oh, I'll destroy that temple, something fierce. Are you not clear if I will destroy that temple? Go look in Shiloh where the tabernacle used to be, and now there's just a burning crater. No, not so much, but there was, it was destroyed. He's saying, listen, I destroyed that. Do you think I won't come because of your rebellion against me? Destroy this temple where I said my name would dwell? His thing was, what the people of Israel were doing is saying, as long as we have God's temple, we can live however we want. God can't do anything to us because he would never destroy his temple. And so Jeremiah tells them, oh, yeah, he would. And how do you think the people responded to that? They were angry. They were very angry. This is what happens to him later in Jeremiah 38. In Jeremiah 38, they accused Jeremiah of cursing the name of the Lord. Here's what Jeremiah had said, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city will die by the sword, by famine and pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, will live. He shall save his life as the prize of war and live. And this really offended the people of Israel. Verse 5, it says this. 
King Zedekiah said, he is in your hands. Why did you say they were in your hands? Here's what the people, King Zedekiah's officer said. This man should be put to death because he is weakening the hands of the soldiers and he has spoken against the temple of God. This man should be put to death because of what he has said. That was their response. And the king said, go ahead, do to him whatever you want. What'd they do? They threw him in a cistern. Cistern didn't have any water in it. It was muddy in the bottom. So they didn't kill him by cutting his head off. What'd they do? They threw him in a cistern so he would starve to death or die of dehydration slowly. That's how mad they were. They said, oh, the king said we can kill him. Let's kill him slowly. That's how mad they were, that he would speak against the temple of the Lord. But he wants the people to understand where you have your assurance. This building is not where your assurance should be. Where should their assurance be? In the Lord himself, through faith, expressed in obedience. And what Jesus wants the disciples to understand, don't act like the people of Jeremiah's day. And that's what they were doing, weren't they? Look at this beautiful temple. God, could, God would never reject his people because we have this beautiful building. Let's go back to what Jesus says about it. Now we understand where everybody's coming from. Jesus says basically what Jeremiah said. As for these things, as for this building, a day is coming when not one stone will be left on top of it. So when this temple is gone, where does your assurance need to be? It needs to be in Jesus. That's what he said in John. Tear down this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. He says, no matter what happens, this temple is destroyed, the city is destroyed, everything that is going to come in the future, the first thing you have to have settled to avoid deception is this. Where is your assurance? What must remain in order for you to be able to say, I'm okay? And what's the answer? Is Jesus still alive? And if he's still alive, are you okay? Yes, we're okay. We may not be happy. We may not be uh, as comfortable as we would like. But what he, Jesus is calling his disciples to, to do is have correct assurance. How do we know everything's okay? Jesus is still in charge. Look at verse 7. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? What will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, when the price of oil is over... No, he didn't say that. It's ridiculous. Why would you even say that? What's his res first response, first sentence response in verse 8? See, you are not led astray. Why did he answer that first? The when question reveals a vulnerability to deception. And he wants us to... He's not saying don't answer, answer the question. Go ahead, ask the question, when is this going to happen? Is it happening now? Good question to ask. But the when will we get there question reveals a heart that is vulnerable to any answer. A vulnerability to deception, just like those false summits. Jesus said the normal wondering of when, it, when these things are going to happen makes us lean towards any good answer that seems to satisfy and what he wants us to understand about the journey from here to home is the nature of the journey. And the nature of the journey and the not knowing when it's going to end makes us vulnerable to wishing it would be. What is the 
nature of the journey. Suffering. Climbing a mountain involves walking on a path. And to get to the top, you have to take whatever that path has in it. Now, unfortunately, we don't know what our path holds, but what Jesus wants us to recognize is there will be difficulty in the days ahead. And because of that difficulty, we will look for the opportunity, and many times the first opportunity to say, you know what, I don't have to be on this path anymore. It's all over. And Jesus is saying, see that you are not led astray. So he lists a few things that are not signs of the end times. Look at it, verse 8 and 9. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. So first thing that doesn't mean he's here. If people show up and say, I'm here. How many false messiahs have come is how many days have there been. There are always those. Many will come, I am he. And many will say, the time is at hand. How do you, want to, how do you sell a whole bunch of books to Christians? Write a book saying, when the end will be. How, do you, how, how come that sells so many books? Because you get to tell two books. You know why? You get to write one book about when the end will be. When that date passes, you get to write the second one explaining why you were off by just a little bit in your math. And usually we'll buy two. The third one, no, we're not buying your books anymore. But we'll buy two of your books. And you, you, we're laughing. We're chuckling a little bit, aren't we? But don't we? I mean, shoot, as soon as somebody says it's next Tuesday... We're buying that book to confirm it's next Tuesday. Tuesday comes and goes. We're a little disappointed. He reworks his math. We'll buy a third book. No. And this is the thing. We're vulnerable to deception. And Jesus says, just because someone shows up and says, I am he, doesn't mean he is he. And just because someone shows up and says, the time is at hand, what's he say? It's a command. When somebody shows up and says, the time is at hand, what are we supposed to do? Do not go after them. This is really, really easy. Somebody says he's coming next Tuesday. What are you supposed to do? Do not go after them. Is it, I'm trying to, this is a softball. This is really, really simple and straightforward. Oh, my lands, we fall for it so much. It's so simple, so straightforward. Nobody think it could be next Tuesday. How do we know if the Lord is coming back next Tuesday? It's really easy. What do you do? Wait till Tuesday. It's really, really simple. But don't go after this person. We're being deceived. Some other things that aren't the end. You will hear of wars. Anybody heard of wars? You will hear of tumults. Again, another word we don't use every day, but when you, tumults aren't the, the sign of the end. These things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. False messiahs will come, and we're so hopeful Jesus is coming that we start to compromise of what we believe about Jesus. Okay, this, this guy seems pretty good. Maybe Jesus is back. These false messiahs will even do supernatural things. Those who do not follow God have done miracles in your Bible. Why will they not do them in the end? Who are some bad guys who did miracles in your Bible? Pharaoh's magicians. They were not doing illusions. They were doing powerful things by the power of the evil one. The devil in Job. God gave him permission to punish Job, and one of the things the devil did to Job was 
sent down fire from heaven to destroy some of his things. So we know this can happen. The other thing, Mount Carmel. I like Carmel better than Carmel because it sounds like a candy bar. Baal's prophets were dancing around this altar hoping fire would come down to consume their sacrifice. Why would they do that? Because they had seen this false god do miracles before. There's no other reason for them to do that all day. When Jesus was doing miracles, the religious leaders who had seen powerful supernatural stuff done did not wonder whether or not he was doing trickery. They wondered the source of his power. And so they accused him of doing miracles by the power of the devil. Finally, in the end, Revelation, there will be an antichrist and a false prophet. And one of the things that will be done is fire will come down from heaven by the power of the evil one. Just because somebody does fancy tricks and miracles, even real supernatural stuff, does not mean they are Jesus. What do they have to be to be Jesus? Jesus. One of the things that's true about the Antichrist is it appears, based on the description in the Bible, it says that his head appears to have received a fatal wound and had been healed. And so there will be a sense, maybe, that even this Antichrist will experience some sort of resurrective event that will fool many. Why would it fool some? Hey, well, Jesus is raised, so this guy must be Jesus. Here's the thing. How many times did Jesus need to raise from the dead? Once. How many times is he raised from the dead? Once. So his punch card is full. He doesn't have to do it again. If a guy shows up and he raises from the dead, then we already know it's not him. Jesus already did it. And this is what Jesus says. This future, we will be susceptible to deception because we're so anxious to get off this difficult road that we'll see miracles and we'll see powers and, boy, everything seems to line up. And Jesus said, these things have to pay, t- take place. The end will not be at once. So he sets the expectations for his disciples right away. The end isn't coming as soon as you want it to come. The end will be sometime in the future. Just because these things show up, just because there are wars and rumors of wars and tumults and whatever else, doesn't mean the end has come. Look at verses 10 and 11, some more things. Nations will rise against nation. Has that happened this week? Yep. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. Wasn't there just one last night? I thought I read in the news. If there wasn't, there probably will be. In various places, there will be famines. Still famines going on. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? People still don't get enough food. Isn't that bizarre? Don't you find that strange? Don't you find, I, mean, I find it strange. I think we're making a lot of food nowadays. We still, not, people are still starving to death. Pretty crazy. And there will be pestilences. We just did a worldwide pestilence. And there will be continuing. And so we said, well, the, the world must be ending. And just know these things come. There will be terrors. There will even be great signs from heaven. And we're so, we're so susceptible to deception. There was a um, great sign from heaven here just a day or two ago, visible in Northern California and Southern Oregon, uh, some material burning up in the atmosphere. And I saw some posting on the socials of people sort of freaking out. The end has come. Jesus is here. Not, not that kind of stuff. But what is this? What is this? Unbelievable. And, uh, you know, what was it? It was the Japanese communications device that had run its course. It hadn't been operating for three years, and finally its orbit had shallowed out enough that it descended into the uh, atmosphere and burned up 
over Northern California. Oh, well, that's boring. Boring. But it's funny, until, until somebody identified what it was, oh, the discussions were compelling. Oh, so excited. It's amazing how excited we Now, just imagine. Let's just play pretend here for a little. Let's just imagine God decided at the end. Let's just play, play pretend. This is just pretend time. Are you okay with that? Seth is on the fence, but let's just imagine the end. God decided to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make all their satellites fall out the sky. Can God do that if he wanted? How bad do you think this planet would freak out? I mean, we lost our minds on Facebook over one Japanese satellite flying over Northern California. Just think if he decided to crash them all. Number one, your phone won't work anymore, by the way. You'll have lots of time. Could you imagine the collective freak out if that happened? And what would everybody say? The first guy to show up to explain this thing is Jesus. That's exactly what we do. We have to be aware. We have to be aware. We are susceptible to deception. And if you act like you are not susceptible, because I went to Bible study, I grew up in Sunday school, I memorized a couple of verses, the one way to make sure you are most susceptible to deception is to think you're not susceptible to deception. Because Jesus told his disciples, be aware, be aware. Look to the end, but be aware of your vulnerability. Things are going to come in the future. I don't know when they're going to come, and I don't know how quickly, but things will come in the future that will remind us the trail to the end is steep, and it is hard, and we will look for rest, and we will look for relief, and the difficulty will get to such a degree that we will take any relief. And Jesus says, don't be fooled. When will the end come? Be careful. Don't be fooled. These difficulties we're describing will get worse and get better back and forth over time. But we call that living in a broken world. Sometimes things will be worse than they will be other times. So the question is, what do we do as worshipers of Jesus that trust him? What will, when will the end come? What do we do? We endure to the end. That's what we do. Beginning in verse 12. We endure till the end. Let me read verses 12 through... Um, how far do I want to read? Let's do 12 through 19 for right now. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you and delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth of w- and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, your life, you will gain your lives. When will the end come? Endure to the very end. If you've ever climbed a mountain, I don't know if you've ever climbed up Mount McLaughlin. You pull off there on Highway 62, I think. There's a trailhead, and you get, get out, and you get on the trail, and what's great about the beginning of that trail, it is nice. It's sort of flat. It's in the woods. It's cool. It's shaded. And the ground is kind of soft because it's that forest floor trail. And it's really not steep. In fact, it's kind of uphill and downhill. It's like, man, this is so awesome. And then you get to the actual mountain, not the trail to the mountain, but the actual mountain, and you realize 
the trail to the summit is almost uphill the entire way. Yeah, like you have to walk up to the summit. There might be a few spots where it sort of goes down a bit, but it's uphill almost the entire way. And, and when we think of our Christian life, I don't want you to get depressed. I just want you to run, understand what prophecy tells us. Trouble follows Christians. The path, Jesus is telling us, is uphill almost the whole way. Sure, there would be times of beauty and calmness and flatness and ease, and we should enjoy those, but we should understand the normal path to the summit is uphill. Trusting Jesus means trusting him in the trouble. That's what trusting Jesus means. It means I want to trust Jesus through the trouble, and I want to trust him all the way to the summit, all the way to the end. That's what I want to do. That's what it means to trust Jesus. And then we ask, well, how long will the trouble last? And I, so I'm happy to give you the answer. Till it's over. I don't have a date. I don't know when. I don't know if yours will go until your funeral or Jesus returns, or if maybe but next week your trouble will lessen a bit. I don't know. But what Jesus is calling us to do in this prophecy is saying, listen, he's just setting our expectation. He's a, here's my trail. Where's Jesus' trail taking him? To the cross. He said, that's my trail. You want to walk my trail with me, you're walking a trail of trouble. I want you to trust me through the trouble. All the way to, to the very end. That's what he wants our hearts prepared to do. So Jesus describes to us some of the things that will come before the end as well also as a part of what the end entails. From Jesus to the end. Persecution and suffering, he describes. They will lay hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. When suffering happens to the believer, both persecution, which is outside people making it difficult to be a believer, or suffering, that is, living in a broken world. Our bodies break down, our cars break down, our houses break down, the people around us break down. Stuff happens because we live in a sin-ruined world. Jesus is saying when this stuff happens, our tendency is to say, well, what's wrong? When, when the world falls apart around us in our lives, usually we say either something's wrong with me or something is wrong with God. And what Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That means you're on the path. You're on the path. Trust me in the midst of the difficulty the path offers. In fact, it doesn't mean something is wrong. It means you have an opportunity for fruitful ministry. Look, this is crazy. You're going to hate this. You're going to wish you didn't come. You're wishing right now you would live stream it so you could switch to another church on your live stream. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Look at verse 13. What's it say? This will be your opportunity to bear witness. When I used to work for a company, and we would have job performance evaluations from time to time. And there was two categories that any part of your job would fall into. One is things you were doing well in. And the other one is opportunities. That's what they called it. It was opportunities to get better at your job. Or another way to say it, if you're really bad, opportunities to not get fired. And 
uh, my boss told me one time, he said, okay, let's look at your opportunities. I said, I don't think you know what that word means. Because that's not how I use that word. And I said, these are things I'm not good at, right? He goes, no, we don't say that. But that's what it is, right? I'm always getting in trouble in, for these things. I didn't get fired from that job. Uh, that, I had opportunities, but not that many. So Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And we say, Jesus, I don't think you understand what opportunity means. That doesn't sound like an opportunity. That sounds like a bad day. So Jesus, look, you're going to have these things happen to you, and you should be, oh, my goodness, here we go. I'm in the sweet spot. I'm in the sweet spot. The trail has just gotten terrible. I might, I might be on the cusp of a, of a powerful opportunity to bear witness to the name of Jesus. Oh, man, this is great. You ever done that when things go terrible? I'll say, oh, man, this is great. Everything's been going so well. I didn't know what God was doing. Finally, he's up to something. The wheels have come off my life. That's exactly what he's saying. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. What does ministry look like? His disciples asked him what a parable meant, a parable of the sower. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed thrown along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. The seed on the rock are those when they hear the word receive it with joy, but they have no fruit, and they believe it for a while. In a time of testing, will fall away. The seed fell among the thorns, and these are those who hear, but they get choked by the cares of life and riches and pleasure. Their fruit does not mature. As for that one in the good soil, these are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So here you have this sower casting the seed, and how much of the seed is actually bearing fruit? We don't know the percentage, but we would say this, not all. Not all. Vigorous ministry is done, and work is done, and the seed is being cast and yet their fruitfulness is not what is anticipated in many places. And Jesus says, the opportunity is what we look for. Our job is to bear witness. And when trouble comes, we should, we should be motivated by the reality that God may be putting us in a place where we get to bear witness. We don't know if that witness is going to bear fruit. Jesus told King Agrippa, I want, you to get, I want you to hear Jesus and get saved. And King Agrippa, do you think I would get saved in such short a time? And, and Paul says, well, I would hope so. But did he get saved? No, he didn't. Paul cast forth the fruit of the, or the seed of the gospel, and the fruit was little in that particular case. Okay, back to Luke chapter 21, verses 16 and 17. Suffering will not only come from the people on the outside, the boogeyman. This is what we think. We think suffering is going to come from strangers, people on the other side of the political aisle. And Jesus says, no, be aware where suffering has come from. You're going to be delivered by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends. When that day comes, when great suffering comes, and there is a question of if this person who has presented himself as the Messiah is the Messiah, there will be some in churches that say, you know what, he's the Messiah. They go for the false peak. They follow the false prophet. And what's going to happen in those days is they will point out people they used to sit next to in church. We think all the persecution is going to come from the bad guys. And Jesus here is making it very clear. 
in the end, you want to be one who stays to the end. You don't want to be following the false. And when we get there, if we get there, if we are among those who have to go through that kind of difficulty, another thing for you to file away in the back of your head is when we get betrayed by people we thought were on our team, we should remember this verse. I hope you'll remember this verse in that day. So, no, we talked about that. This happened. This, this, uh, this isn't surprise. This happened. I pray it would never happen to any of us. But what Jesus is saying, it's going to happen to somebody. And if it's us, I want us to be, okay, this happens. I'm going to stay on the trail. It's uphill the whole way. I'm going to stay with it. I trust Jesus. I don't need these particular people. I need Jesus alone. What are we supposed to do? Verse 14. This is what prophecy does for us. Look at verse 14. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. So the speci- I want to give you the specific command that is, is clear and then give you the principle. He's saying, listen, there might be a, a point in your life where the difficulty is going to give you an opportunity for ministry. And what he wants you to do is say this. Whatever comes, I'm going to trust God in that moment to give me the words to say, but I'm going to say something. So settle it. So we know what the future holds, right? Do we know what the future holds in the Bible? Yeah, trouble. It's coming. So what you do now, before the trouble comes, you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to settle now what, what, what's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to say. I, I, don't, I don't know the Bible well enough. I'm not a good enough Christian, whatever. But you know what? When that day comes, I'm going to say something. I'm going to let God give me the words to say. So it's settling today for reality into the future I'm not certain of. I'm deciding today what I'm going to do there. Does that kind of make sense? And what we want to do as people of the Scripture is do that for our entire walk with the Lord. We want to settle today. How bad are we okay with it getting and still saying, I trust Jesus? I don't want you to decide that on the day it gets really bad. Because days get really bad, don't they? It happens. What we want to do is decide that, not that day. When do we want to decide it? Right now. I want to decide right now. Am I going to stay with Jesus whatever may come? That's the way to endure to end. Settle for yourself today what you will do on that day, whether it's next week or next month. And he gives us an assurance in verse 18. Not a hair of your head will perish. That promise is better for some than others. Let me figure that one out. But your endu- by your endurance, you will gain your life. What, is he, what he is saying here is when you trust Jesus, one of the things that will be displayed is endurance. Faith in Christ results in endurance. And no matter what happens, the one thing that cannot keep us down is death. That's what's great about being a believer. Death couldn't keep our Savior down. That means death won't keep us down. No matter what happens, we're good. We're going to make it home because Jesus will get us home. So our endurance will bear fruit. One day we will stand in the presence of Christ, and we will live the life we were supposed to live all along. You will live. We will be raised. Endurance through suffering is one of the marks of faith in our life. In suffering, one of the things we gain clarity on is which life to us is most important. Every believer lives two lives. I think there's a phrase, YOLO. You ever heard that? I thought it was just a city in California. You only live once. Have you you heard this? 
and sort of the idea here, so make sure you get your bucket list up. That's not true for the believers. We live twice. We have this life in which it's a life of faith where we get to worship God in a particular way, which is a life where we trust him who we have not yet seen. Then we live a second life, the resurrected life for all of eternity. Which life are you living for? And do the math. Which one's longer? Resurrection is longer. This one is relatively short. Some of us are going to make it to 80, some of it 90, some of us longer, some of us shorter. But regardless, this life is relatively short. That life is eternal. And all Jesus is saying, which life are you living for, investing in, anticipating? Which life is most important? In suffering, we recognize we live for a better life that's coming on the other side of the resurrection. All right, let's read verses 20 through 24, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then not, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside in the city depart, and, not let, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles in the time, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Jesus, of course, was speaking these words about 30, 33 years old, somewhere in there. So 30 years after his birth, obviously. The destruction of Jerusalem is what's being described here, which is going to occur 40 years after he said it. A.D. 70, the emperor of Rome, Titus, invades Jerusalem. We talked about it a few weeks ago, but Josephus, the historian, notes that likely over a million people died in the ensuing siege and destruction of Jerusalem. It was, it was, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Everything, Jesus, in fact, description of this is a little tame compared to what? Happens. In fact, Jesus' description here is so accurate that, that many non-believing scholars are trying to figure out ways to convince us Luke was written after A.D. 70 because there's no way he could have known this. But we know all the manuscript evidence points to the fact that Luke was written far before A.D. 70. So why is Jesus telling this? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, Jerusalem is a preview of coming attraction. Here's what judgment looks like for those who reject the Messiah. The people of Israel, unfortunately, rejected the Messiah, and they crucified him. Not all of them did. Some, of course, believed in the name of Christ, but as a whole, the people of Israel reject the Messiah, and judgment comes. And Jesus wants us to understand the destruction of Jerusalem is just a, a localized event of what's going to happen sometime, someday in the future to everything. And that's what you read about in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, of course, describes the end of all things. But what, what is the book of Revelation about? What is the reason the book of Revelation was written? Have you read it? You say, no, I saw the movie. Chapters 2 and 3 are the most important chapters in the book of Revelation. If you don't read the book of Revelation, I don't understand why. It's really, really entertaining. There's a dragon. But chapters 2 and 3 are the reason it was written. Written to seven churches. And what does he tell every, every single church? Overcome. Stick with it. Stay in it. Stick with the Lamb of God. His kingdom's coming. Between now and the kingdom, 
a lot of difficulty. Yes, of course. So since you know difficulty is coming, what do, you, what do you settle in your mind to do? I'm going to be among, by God's grace, the overcomers. That's what we settle today. I don't care what comes. I know the path is, is uphill the whole way. But I want to settle in my mind, I'm going to be an overcomer by the grace of Christ. And then no matter what comes, I'm going to stick with Jesus because he's all I got. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you see the destruction of Jerusalem coming, and, and many of the disciples lived long enough to see it, not all of them. They would have seen that and said, okay, we know what's coming. Stick with it. Will the end come? Two things. Don't be fooled. Endure to the end. A couple of sort of applications to think about. The key to not being fooled is to recognize that we are prone to being fooled. The, key, the, the way to guarantee you're going to be fooled is to sit here right now today and say, oh, I won't be that guy. Well, you're going to get fooled. The key to not being fooled is to understand how prone we are to being fooled. Jesus tells us this. Those who think they can't be fooled likely will be. Uh, over in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this about the day of the Lord. He says, the day of the Lord will be unmistakable. It will be like lightning in the sky. So we see a Japanese satellite fly into our atmosphere. We go, is it here? And what Jesus is saying is, if you have to wonder if it's here, guess what? It's not. Because when he shows up, you'll be like, oh, he's here. It is on. When Jesus comes, it will be unmistakable, like lightning flashing from horizon to horizon. Before today, or between today and the day of the Lord, is trouble. There is trouble. He, Jesus even describes over in Matthew, birth pangs, which says, the, the great tribulation is bad, but between now and then is hints of the tribulation to come. When it hits, whether whatever the tribulation that comes into your life and on your path to the summit, whatever comes, what we want to settle is this. I don't want to be prone to being fooled because I want to escape difficulty. I don't want to be prone to being fooled. Just because life has become really, really difficult, I want to say, it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep my eyes on the one true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Look for Jesus and not signs. The power of Jesus, the power of Jesus in our life is not looking for signs of the future. It's looking for opportunities for fruitful ministry. The power of Jesus in our life today is not looking for signs by looking at the price of oil or what's happening in the Middle East or whatever it might be. The, 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 the purpose and the power of living for Jesus today is saying, what is the opportunity for fruitful ministry today in the context of a world ruined by sin? We shift our minds from saying suffering is an opportunity to figure out how to stop suffering and instead say suffering is an opportunity for fruitful ministry ministry. I might say it this way, the power of prophecy to look to the future is not to give us hope and comfort. That's why it's always a little bit dicey to preach prophecy. We start with a passage and I'm going to give the title, When Will the End Come? And we get ready to settle in to talk about how great things are going to be. And they will be great. But what does prophecy tell us? Things are going to be great and they're not today. 
There's a reason why all the Old Testament prophets got killed. Generally, it's not well received. The power of prophecy is not hope and comfort. Hope and comfort is where prophecy leads in the future. The power of prophecy is fruitful ministry today. That's the power of prophecy in your scripture. Some of us are waiting for the opportunity to do fruitful ministry till things get a little better. Things are a little too hectic. Life is a little bit too hard. When does Jesus say the greatest opportunities for ministry are? When things are terrible. That's why I think that's funny. I'll be able to serve the Lord, but things need to settle down in my life. And I got too many irons in the fire, and, and things are really hard right now. And just go, what are you talking about? Things are really hard. What does Jesus call that? Opportunity. We wait, and then everything settles out, and everything's hunky-dory, and, and we say, okay, Jesus, everything's fine in my life now, so what can I do for you? And he, what are you talking about? The opportunity passed. The opportunity was back there. Jesus says ministry opportunities occur when things are hard. He says as much in the passage. Okay, last thing. We'll end with this. I don't want to get thrown into a cistern. I think we need to change our goal as Christians. Here's what I think one of our goals should be. If I have several goals as a Christian, here's one of the goals I think we should aim for. Varsity level suffering endurance. We need to abandon our goal of waiting for suffering to end. Or I've got to figure out my Christian life because then God will finally take the bad stuff out of my life. Jesus calls us here to have varsity level suffering endurance. To get really, how, how do I get really, really good by God's grace at patiently enduring through suffering? Because I don't want to miss the opportunity that God is going to give me during suffering. Let me read a couple of verses. Romans, these are ones that are familiar to you. Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 3. Uh, sorry, Michelle, there's a game day ad. It's not on there. She's frantically looking for Romans 5. Back. It's not on there. Not only that, we rejoice in our suffering. What do you, when you're rejoicing in your suffering, you get your letterman's jacket for suffering endurance. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. This is fantastic. How do you get hope in the Christian life? Because it ends with hope, doesn't it? You see that? It's simple. Enter suffering, endure, have your character developed, and you will have hope. And we want hope without character because we don't want endurance and we don't want suffering. Hope is through patient endurance through the challenges that God Gives us. Let's look at another one. Second Peter chapter one. Same thing, Michelle. It's not in there. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and brother, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing that keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what we do. You say to yourself, okay, I want to be a varsity suffering endurer person. How do I do that if I'm not suffering right now? Maybe you're in one of those times in your life where you are hashtag too blessed to be stressed. 
And, and you say, you know what, I don't know if it's going to always be this way. And I want to know, what do I do right now so that when the suffering comes, I'm ready to take a good hard swing at the opportunity that's going to come my way. So what you want to do is, if you want to do Romans 5 when suffering hits, endure, have your character developed, and then have hope even in the midst of suffering, what do you do? When you are doing well, you do 2 Peter. And you on purpose take the initiative to say to yourself, okay, I want to make every effort, that's what he says there, to supplement my faith with virtue. What's virtue? No right and wrong. Do what's right, don't do what's wrong by the power of the Spirit. Also, to supplement virtue with knowledge. Know God through his word. With knowledge, self-control. Okay, now it's meddling. What's self-control? The ability to tell yourself not to do things that you want to do even when no one's looking. It's not complicated. Self-control is the ability to tell yourself to do things you don't want to do even when nobody cheers for you. That's self-control. The ability by the Spirit to do things God's ways even when nobody knows. Do that on purpose during times of, of good times to continue to foster strength in your life. Steadfastness, that's faithfulness, a willing to stick with it. Godliness, pursuing God's ways in your life. Brotherly affection, a willingness to show love and gentleness and care to people around you who don't deserve it, like Jesus did. When we do all of these things during times of peace and calm, then when suffering hits, we'll have great opportunity to take a hard swing at that opportunity and endure with the best of them and take full advantage of the ministry opportunity that only comes in the worst of times. We want to make it our ambition, our ambition that when suffering comes, that we're ready to go. It doesn't mean we look forward to suffering and we're some kind of masochistic kind of people that we just enjoy terrible things happening, no. But when it comes, we say, okay, I've got an opportunity I would never would have had before. God, make my heart ready. We want to be ready to take full advantage of the opportunity that suffering gives us for the kingdom of God. When will the end come? First thing, what is it? Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Finally, this, endure to the end. God, we thank you that you are faithful to us, and you show us what it looks like to endure through suffering as you walked the path through the Garden of Gethsemane, through the rejection from one of your loved ones, Judas, through the torture of flogging and humiliation of crucifixion, and, and finally, your death on a cross. But God, you also showed us what came through that suffering, redemption, forgiveness of sins, and because of your res resurrection, eternal life for any who would trust you. God, we are grateful that because of everything you did, we can receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life simply by trusting Jesus. But God, many of us, as we entered into that relationship through faith, we figured somehow that to walk with you is to walk a road that is nothing but peace and calm and ease. And we discover here in your word, Lord, that the path is uphill, 
there are lots of obstacles and difficulty ahead. I pray, God, that for this people here, you would make us those who endure to the very end. And we take full advantage of the opportunities of suffering will bring us. For those of us, God, right now who are experiencing great uh, blessing and calm, Lord, by your spirit, would you give us the power to take full advantage in these moments to draw closer to you so that we are ready when difficulty comes. We thank you for Jesus, and we can't wait until your returns. Come soon, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with the song?